0: taken strides. I actually recently became the public history intern for the Pink Triangle Legacies Project.
1: Oh my gosh, that's amazing. So uh, for those who don't know, can you like go into a little bit of detail about that?
0: Yeah, of course. So this internship specifically is an inaugural internship in collaboration with the Pink Triangle Legacies Project founded by Jake Newsom just recently, um, a couple weeks ago. And with the Zucker Goldberg Center for Holocaust Studies at the College of Charleston, led by Dr. Chad Gibbs, who we've had on the show before. But the Pink Triangle Legacies project is dedicated to promoting the education of queer Holocaust history.
1: That's really interesting. And so our friend Grace, who is also a guest on this episode, she also works with Dr. Jake Newsome.
0: Yes. Um,
1: So, like, what exactly will be, like, your role? Do you know what that will be yet?
0: Yeah, and I'm so excited for it. Uh, primarily what I'm working on right now is gathering options for what we're calling a profile, which is basically just a document that gives the history on one individual's experience um, and how it was impacted by their queer identity and what happened to them. Um, and then I'm also working on like a spreadsheet of... Ways to disseminate this information to different educators, essentially. Um, We're getting lists of Holocaust centers throughout the US, professors who speak about Holocaust- related topics, um, queer resource centers, stuff like that. So if you're in any of those and want to send me a little email, check the check the notes. That is so exciting! I'm
1: so happy for you, Natalie.
0: I am also, I am ecstatic. Anyways. Anyways.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Me, I've been diagnosed with an avocado allergy. You know, life's really tough with that.
0: It really is. Natalie's out
1: here getting inaugural internships. I'm finding out about avocado allergies. Well, I
0: mean, to be fair, a couple years ago I figured out that I was allergic to every raw fruit and vegetable. So, I feel like you might still have a leg up on that one. In what way? You can eat apples. Yeah. I love apples. <laughs> I also don't love dying.
1: Yeah, me neither.
0: Yeah. No avocados for Leah.
1: Gonna have to learn to love salsa, I guess. Were you a big guacamole person? I enjoyed it. Okay. No, I wouldn't say no.
0: I like a good guacamole.
1: Yeah. Yeah
0: can have too much but
1: you know i guess i could <laughs> little update on our last episode which was on Molly Landsman um i will actually be meeting with dr chad gibbs very soon to discuss like further steps that we need to do in the process of getting schropperstina laid for the landsman family Woo. very exciting so i know so exciting
0: it's a long time coming
1: it really is um yeah
0: it's been about a year. Yeah, about a year. Part
1: of that, we have to subtract some time because it was the summer. And
0: I feel like that still counts.
1: Yeah. You know? I do too. But, you know, as Dr. Gibbs says, I don't know.
0: Yeah, he'd have something to say. <laughs> he would. <laughs> he would. He loves his little phrases.
1: Yeah. But that's really exciting.
0: And speaking of Dr. Gibbs, I've been working on an independent project with him recently looking into. Our podcast topic <gasps> for Helmerbach. Wow, wow, wow.
1: That's so exciting! So, tell us a little bit more about like the project and what it culminated in.
0: Yeah, so I started this long paper essentially as a part of his Holocaust class that I took last semester. Um, we looked over it, and we've decided to over the course of this semester keep working at it, keep digging into it, chipping pieces off, putting chips in. Um, and polishing it up for graduate school applications.
1: That's really exciting.
0: Yeah, it is. It's quite scary.
1: It is. Yeah. Yeah, I've started looking at grad school programs and I'm signing up for like informational sessions. Whew. Yeah. And some of them are like one on one and I don't I don't want to have to get to know someone one on one. But anyways. Plus one. Back to Miss Arabach. Absolutely. Can I call her Rachel?
0: I think so. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to call
1: her Rachel, Rachel
0: because... Rachel
1: Okay. I'm going to call her Rachel because then I won't butcher the Yiddish pronunciation. Yeah. Because we tried recording this before and I did butcher it the entire time.
0: <laughs> so there are a couple different pronunciations mm-hmm. of Rachel's name. Rahel Ouerbach, Rahel Auerbach, Rachel Auerbach. However, um, I am going to stick with a pretty much standard for Rahel Oyerbach. Rahel? For the podcast. Yes. Okay, I can do that. Amazing. So I want to start with a story here. Part of me and Chad's uh, development of this essay came in the introduction. He wanted me to find a moment that really spoke to me, and it came through a photograph. It was taken in 1946, five years after Euerbach had joined the Oneg Shabbat team. She's 43 years old, standing above Hirsch Wasser, a fellow survivor of the team, and a small metal can. Inside is their greatest risk, a documentation of Jewish life inside the Warsaw Ghetto, buried before the Ghetto Uprising of 1943. The archive had almost been lost. Wasser was the only survivor who knew of its location, and even then, he only knew the location of one of the three caches— The second was found in 1950 by workmen, and the third is currently believed to be underneath the Chinese embassy. It's always been a really moving photograph to me, and the emotion on both of their faces really gives light to a lot of the messages of survival found within Auerbach's work. And unfortunately, even though she's such an integral part of how we understand Holocaust history... And in memory, her impact has been largely understudied. And even as of 2023, the United States Holocaust Memorial in Washington, D.C. has no mention of her impact on their exhibit about the Onek Shabbat.
1: So how did we get here?
0: So we'll start with a little bit of early life background. Rahul Erebach was born in 1903 in Lanowitz, Poland. It's a city now in Ukraine, but she studied psychology, philosophy and history And then her journalistic career takes off in 1925, and she publishes a lot of articles dedicated to political and cultural issues in the Lemberg Polish Daily. She was also noted as a founding member of the Yiddish Literary Movement in Galicia, and worked for the Cushteyer, again, I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, periodical, which brought attention to the contributions of women in Yiddish literature. In 1933, she moves to Warsaw, the budding central of the Jewish-Yiddish press, She publishes a lot of articles during this period before the war for the Naj Trzschglad, focusing on literature, psychology, and theater. And then after the invasion of Poland in 1939, Auerbach and the majority of the Polish-Jewish community in and surrounding uh, Warsaw were confined to the Warsaw Ghetto. In the same year, Emanuel Ringenblum, a well-known community figure and historian, charges Eurebach with managing the soup kitchens within the ghetto, where she was able to raise the average caloric intake of ghetto inhabitants from about 180 calories per day to about 500 with the help of food smugglers. And then in 1941, Ring and Bloom comes back to Eurebach and recruits her to work on the Oneg Shabbat along with dozens of other members. And for those who don't know what the Oneg Shabbat is, it's this secret archive that was buried underneath the Warsaw Ghetto, again, prior to the uprising in 1943. But it has this collection of testimonies, documentations, photographs, maps, journals, pretty much anything you could collect and put into a box, they did. And they buried it as a sign of the Jewish people. They meant it as a historical documentation to what had happened to the Jews of Poland because they weren't sure they were going to survive.
1: During the Holocaust, what role did she play, particularly within the Warsaw Ghetto?
0: So, Weribach was actually thrust into this position of documentation. She had been managing the soup kitchens, giving her ready access to a lot of intellectuals within the ghetto, as well as just everyday inhabitants who had stories to tell her. So, she starts collecting testimonies, writing down just what's happening on a daily basis, which is really important, especially because we have these archived documents that are not from the post-war. They're created in the day they're happening.
1: It's sort of like a version of Anne Frank's diary.
0: Yeah. It's with a, the intent. It's a look back.
1: Yeah, with the intent of it being used for something of importance.
0: Yes. Yeah. They knew this was important. When Ring and Bloom contacts Oyerbach about working on the Oneg Shabbat, So in Soup Kitchen, she notes this moment that Ringelblum comes up to her and tells her about the decision to busy the intellectuals in the Jewish institutions. And he makes this statement that not everyone can escape and not everyone should, referring to those who he's considering intellectuals who have a unique and specific responsibility to document the progression of Jewish life under the Nazi regime, and especially within the Warsaw Ghetto. Included in that documentation comes the testimony of Abraham Jacob Kraspecki, a survivor of the Treblinka extermination camp. It was through this testimony that the team learned of the final solution and the urgent need for even more thorough documentation. The underground systems of survivors and partisans had helped to alert the various Jewish populations throughout the territories and ghettos. And within the records, there are in depth testimonies on the operations of the camp, the process, and even a hand drawn map.
1: So, if it was under the rebel of Warsaw, how and why did they make the decision to bury these metal
0: cans? So, in the summer of 1942, they start burying these sections. They're buried in three different caches in a combination of these small metal cans and, uh, like, milk jugs. And it's buried following a lot of the deportations of the members of the Oneg Shabbat team, but all three sections are buried before the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising of 1943. Arbach actually escapes the ghetto a month before the uprising, But essentially, they'd taken the steps that they saw necessary to preserving their archive. And this is all following that, again, the information coming into the ghetto about the final solution. And they're truly, there's a want to know what's going to happen to them, but this even bigger fear of the possibilities that the Jewish community will be completely erased and there will be no sign of them. So they're hoping that by burying these, they can be found and people will be like, this is what happened.
1: I think that's a very human response. Um, During when COVID sort of first took off in 2020, um, I was like, oh, I should I should create a diary so people can know what my innermost thoughts were. Oh, yeah. That lasted all like two weeks. Um,
0: Yeah, I think it's a very human thing to just want to Be remembered. Yeah. Not only as an individual, but also as a community, and especially under such a trying circumstance that you're constantly under the fear that your entire community is going to die. You want people to know.
1: Yeah. Remember that there once was a David Berger.
0: Exactly. There's actually a quote um, that was found inside of one of the caches that I thought was really meaningful, and I... Popped right at the beginning here to reference, Um, but it's by David Graeber, who's 19 years old at the time he's writing this. We don't know anything about him except for the journal entries he put into the archive. But he says, what we were unable to cry and shriek out into the world, we buried into the ground. I would love to see the moment in which the greatest treasure will be dug up and scream the truth at the world so the world may know but no we shall certainly not live to see it and therefore i write my last will
1: that's really difficult i don't imagine that i could be 19 yeah and writing like i'm going to die and it's you know i won't live to see you all understand the horrors that i went through
0: yeah and it's truly it's it's heart wrenching to think about this 19 year old boy mm-hmm who's grown up in this environment that's telling him he should hate himself, that he's abnormal. That the world how wants how many other dead. stories did we lose? Yeah. The only things we know about him are from this archive. There's no other trace.
1: It's just so wild to me that so many people could exist and live such full lives, and we lose them because of a fascistic movement yeah but uh, it also yeah. sort of inspires confidence, knowing that like we do remember him. We know who a little bit about who David Graber was and what he so valiantly wanted for his life, which is to be remembered, and he is,
0: and at such a young age, I mean we're only i'll be twenty one in a few weeks
1: yeah i I couldn't imagine doing that. Knowing what I know about the Warsaw Ghetto and how knowing how lethal it was there, what ended up happening to Auerbach there?
0: So fortunately, on March 9th of 1943, only a month prior to the uprising, she is able to escape the Warsaw Ghetto and go to what's considered the Aryan side of Warsaw. She relies on the supposedly non-Jewish appearance, which we know doesn't exist like that. Um, and her advanced understanding of the Polish and German languages to escape under false papers. As she's escaped and she's now still trying to pursue this documentation, Adolf and Basia Berman help to recruit her to document testimonies and act as a courier for the Jewish underground while also hiding as a Polish secretary. She produces a lot of works in this time, like they called it Deportation, Together with the People, and its core 1943, among others. Um, together with the People had been commissioned by the Jewish National Committee to give Polish readers a deeper understanding of life within the ghetto. And as the war got closer to Warsaw, Auerbach entrusted one of her journals to Jan Zabinski, a known supporter of the Jewish resistance. Zabinski buries the notebook underneath the zoological gardens of Warsaw— which he owns, and they are unearthed after the German retreat in 1945, published in the same year.
1: So she has such a big role in the Onek Shabbat, in the Warsaw Ghetto. Does that same sort of, I guess, big figure continue after the war ends, and after the Holocaust?
0: Absolutely. So after the war, she remains really active in documentation and research. She's often referenced as a survivor historian It's a category for the first generation of Holocaust survivors who become historians of the atrocities they faced. She provides a lot of perspective, especially with her background. She'd already had pre-war in journalism and research. And then in the following years after the war, she has all of these projects that really contribute to our overall understanding of the Holocaust In the present day, in 1945, in November, as a member of the Polish State Committee for the Investigation of Nazi War Crimes on Polish Soil, she visits the Treblinka extermination camp to document her own historical account of what has happened. The publication was named in the fields of Treblinka. And in this book, our professor, Chad Gibbs, has actually recently acquired a copy that he showed me. And it was I was blown away. He pulls it out from under his desk. He goes, you know what this is? I think my heart skipped a beat. My brain exploded. I was like, oh my gosh, Chad, I don't read Yiddish, but I know what that cover is. And inside it are these maps of Treblinka, including the fences and the paths, like even the ones just built by people just walking over the same spot. And I think that's truly incredible that she was able to get all of this accuracy into there. And then in 1950, she emigrates to Israel, where she spends the rest of her life. She was a founder and collector for the Yad Vashem Department for the Collection of Witness Testimony, which currently archives over 36,000 testimonies, including 12,000 video testimonies. And she is, to date, one of the most important resources we have for documentation and testimony collection. She's part of the first generation, and she even publishes this 18-page guide in Hebrew about how to interview survivors.
1: So we talked earlier about how it's likely that like part of why they started the Onek Shabbat is so that they could have this sort of evidence. Yeah. Did that, was that ever used? Because I know that in a lot of the Nazi trials, they had to rely on Nazi documentation and not necessarily on like how victims actually felt, how survivors felt, and what the, how they were treated. What ro- Did Rachel play any role in this?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So we see this turning point with the trial of Adolf Eichmann. He was a leading member of the Nazi party, but he's essentially a bureaucrat. And during this time where Jews are still facing a lot of anti-Semitism after the war... And even though people understand what happened and likely what the consequences are of such unjust hatred towards a group, Israel is searching for an answer. And they bring that search to Argentina because Adolf Eichmann has moved to Argentina. They essentially send this like Israeli form of secret operatives to Argentina and kidnap Eichmann to bring him back to Israel to stand trial. And he's charged with the deportation of Jews to ghettos, concentration camps, and extermination camps. But at the end of the day, he's a bureaucrat, and they don't really understand what they need to do to put on this essentially show to the world of this is where hatred gets us. The trial's held in a theater, which I think is extremely interesting. That is, yeah. Yeah. They needed more seats. They wanted people to see. They needed people to see what the consequences of hatred were. In doing that, they're trying to charge him as a bureaucrat. So Eichmann's trial begins in Jerusalem, which is distinctly separate from the other trials, which had occurred, as you said, in Germany with German Nazi documents. And Euerbach has a unique approach for how to present Eichmann's trial and it's a revolutionary victim-first centered form of trial for the Nazis. She worked to reimagine the role of the the role of the victims in the trials by putting forward a testimony as resistance to cultural genocide. She delivers a lecture in Hebrew introducing the model and she wants to include the testimonies of victims in order to show the firsthand accounts of the victimized communities.
1: It's really insane to think about what her legacy is not just within Holocaust oral histories and memory, but also, that's the way that we set up our trials now. Yeah, it's completely victim centric. It's really, that's that's amazing. I mean,
0: it's absolutely incredible because they, they come into this, they don't know how to prosecute him. They don't, they don't have a way that they can do this and put on this show to the world saying this is what happened. So they end up just charging him with, the Holocaust essentially. And it works. The world goes, oh my gosh, that is horrible. And we can't do it. <laughs> and anti-Semitism does start to settle in the U.S. too. Prior to Oerbach's work, there's no official Jewish archive, which made it incredibly difficult to assemble a database of testimony that, of course, later became Yad Vashem with the victim testimonies, But the Onek Shabbat was one of the central is one of the central resources for the Jewish Historical Institute of Warsaw, which was established in 1947 and is considered one of the most important research institutes on Jewish history in Poland. Outside of law, she also has a very public influence. In 1967, a public dispute occurs between her and Jean-François Steiner, where she defends her unwavering stance on the importance of historical accurate documentation, disputing his inaccuracies in his recent publication about Treblinka.
1: So, you know, just like looking plainly at this, I can understand from a women and gender studies perspective why we wouldn't know, or why she would be so understudied. Um, Can you go into a little bit more detail about that?
0: Yeah, so from what I'm gathering and what I'm looking at, I see two really distinct possibilities. One is, indeed, that she's a woman, and as the era of The Witness leaves us, we're left with a lot of questions regarding the Holocaust and its impact on women, sexualized violence, queer prosecution, shout-out Pink Triangle legacies, and a ton of other topics that weren't spoken about or just due to societal stigma, men were just seen as a little more important when they shared their, their stories of survival.
1: They were seen as more reliable, and they, they could leave out that quote-unquote emotion.
0: Yeah. Within the Warsaw Ghetto, there are these unnamed journalists who essentially put in these pieces about the sexual violence and forced prostitution and it really just opens to a multitude of stories, noting a really common theme of like disappointment, uh, perceived immorality, um, and this is really a topic that Holocaust studies is just getting into—that women did face significantly different experiences, and that definitely includes Rahul Eberbach. She may not have, you know, been listened to as much. Her coworkers may have been seen as more reliable. Um, even within the D.C. Holocaust Memorial, there's not her name, but there are others, and they're all men. And then secondly, we also see a broader systematic trend within the study of Holocaust history where people at least used to lean more into the stories of prosecution rather than the stories of resistance. And Rahel Ouerbach's resistance is honestly just beautiful because it's very, very commonly overshadowed by perpetration. But um, scholars such as Michael R. Morris believe that the intention is what defines the action. He lays out these five types of resistance and although Euerbach can't really claim just one or one over another, she hits all five. Number one being symbolic resistance or I remain what I was. Number two, polemic resistance or I tell the truth. Three, defensive resistance or I aid and protect. Four, offensive resistance, I fight to the death. Or five, resistance enchained, chained or freedom fighters in camps and ghettos. And although she can't, lay claim to just one or even just one over the other the work does hit all of them it fits to a degree in each category as a dedication to the preservation of the Jewish story an act of protection documentation and as future evidence against people like Adolf Eichmann
1: that's really interesting it definitely like I find that when I am Like looking at stories of survival or looking at the Holocaust, I am much more interested in the stories of survival.
0: Yeah. And I really find that interesting because, like, when you look at testimony, are you resonating more with the stories of the ways they were harmed or the stories of the ways they fought? The ways they fought, obviously. Like, it's just,
1: it's a no brainer to me that I would be more drawn to stories of survival and resistance over the ways in which someone was harmed because I don't personally... Well, I find it repelling to look at the ways in which someone was harmed because it's almost like causing a second harm to them by reading it.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I think it really does vary based on your like internal question of why you want to look at this history to begin with and the ways that you're interested in it. Like, I am very interested in the, first of all, the oral histories concept. I think it's gorgeous and amazing, but also in the ways in which women's stories were simply different or in the ways that people used stereotypes to their benefit.
1: Yeah, and it's, and like, part of this is why I sort of have this disgust towards people who say, oh, I'm really into World War II. Yeah. Because they usually go towards like the stories of persecution and the ways in which people were harmed. And I think that that's not a good way of highlighting our humanity because we all have a little bit of resistor in us, I think. Absolutely.
0: And while we're talking about this, I'm kind of thinking about maybe there is an aspect of education in this that looks at the sex of the historian studying it.
1: That's a really good point. I definitely think that because I was raised and socialized and continue to live as a woman, I am sort of taught to look
0: towards humanity. Yeah. I think women face a very different perspective of growing up than men do. Women are expected to be more empathetic. Mm Mm-hmm. And potentially that pulls a cord when, you know, I'm choosing to look at these these kinds of subjects and resistance. Definitely. I'd be really interested to pull a man into this room right now. <laughs> and say so, Yeah. When
1: looking at the Holocaust. Not what Chad you
0: because he does look at resistance, but he also has a minor in women's and gender studies, so Let's see maybe, who's who's maybe a man. We can, a little
1: impact. Who's a man we can call up right now?
0: And me and we are actually gonna call both of our dads. I think my dad's probably taking a nap right now. Oh, anyways. Um, um but I am very curious to if that kind of history has a gendered aspect because we start looking at when we start looking at resistance and the experience of women and the experience of queer people. Because it does align with, it looks like women entering the field.
1: This is awkward. I really only have women in my contacts. Continue. I can't call up a man.
0: Okay. Well, we weren't going to. I was moving on like we were going to cut that part out.
1: Oh, I was actually going to call up a man. <laughs> yeah, and also with the the burgeoning of women's and gender studies and feminist theory in the 80s. Yeah looking more so more so towards the experiences of marginalized peoples in an already marginalized group because it's easy to say like this is the experience of a marginalized group all across the board within marginalized groups there are even more marginalizations absolutely men have more authority than women do jewish men have more authority than jewish women queer intersectionality jewish intersectionality
0: intersectionality
1: This is DEI, and the state is going to come after us.
0: (laughs) We do live in South Carolina, for those that don't remember this. Um, And sometimes South Carolina has a problem with how we think. But you know what? We're going to keep thinking it anyway.
1: Yeah, call your representatives.
0: Call your representatives. Register to vote. Actually vote.
1: (laughs) Yep. Don't just vote in your own interest. Vote for the greater good of everyone. Truly.
0: Truly. I've seen so many things circulating social media recently that are like, if you can vote against your friends.
1: They're not your friends, babe. Yeah. You don't care for them.
0: Yeah. And it's true. When I, I definitely, like when you're voting, don't vote for a name. Yeah. Look across that ballot. Look them up. Search their motives, their backgrounds, whatever you need to look at to ensure that you aren't hurting yourself and the people around you. And just you, humans in general. Do you want me to give you a
1: really good story, Natalie? Yes. That has absolutely no relation to the topic that we're talking
0: about. You no, know, this is just going to be a long podcast. We'll segue back into Auerbach later. Yeah.
1: yeah. This is all about making sure that we are aware of what's going on and preventing harm to others. Exactly. So that there isn't a need for a 2nd onex Shabbat.
0: And these things, they correlate with real life all the time. They do.
1: Yeah. So in 2022, I found out that I had an allergy, right, to pecans. Deathly allergic. So I went to my representative because I was like, oh, there's a law saying that ambulances can carry EpiPens, but the ambulance that I was in didn't have them. They only had Benadryl, which, like, what good is that going to do when my throat is closing up, you know?
0: That's concerning.
1: It is really concerning, isn't it? Yeah. Be careful, Natalie. Um,
0: I don't take ambulances that often. <laughs> if you're dying, you will. Yeah, I tend to avoid it, though.
1: You know? Yeah. So anyways, I went to his office, my representative, Gilgatch. He's in the South Carolina um, House of Representatives. And he, I was like, you know, this is the issue. Like, we need to require EpiPens and ambulances. Like, people die. He's like, this is a really big issue. I'll definitely look into it. It is now 2024, and Mr. Gilgatch has instead decided to co-sponsor a bill that is against gender-affirming care for trans youth. Where's my EpiPen bill? Nowhere. Yeah. And what's really funny is that they've nicknamed this bill Help Not Harm. He wants a bigger killer in the state. Peanuts. Not trans kids. This is true. This is true. You don't know how many times I've had an issue with something I'm allergic to? At least five times in the last two years.
0: Have you ever been beat up by a trans kid? No. Yeah. It's politicians prioritizing their personal beliefs over the values and needs of their constituents. And you know what their constituents need? They need care. They need... They need EpiPens and ambulances. They need access to gender-affirming care. Because you know what's also a bigger killer? Suicide.
1: Yep. Damn straight.
0: I mean, sometimes the logic just it's baffles just like me. Because, like, what therapy. if I had low estrogen and, yeah. like, there was just something going on in my brain is giving me more gender-affirming care?
1: You want gender-affirming care? Lip filler? Mm, true. <laughs> BBLs? <laughs> I was going to say that, but I didn't want to. Tummy tucks?
0: Yeah.
1: This um, is all true leg enlargement you know like how men will go for surgery because yeah, they want to get their legs longer yeah, because they want to be taller that's gender affirming care so we're not banning that like
0: it's just crazy
1: you want know gender affirming care erectile dysfunction pills
0: <laughs> are we keeping all of this in <laughs> I think we should. I think we should, too. Because <laughs> yeah. it's important. Because yeah. it does correlate. Yeah, I Everything correlates what... to real life. I don't
1: necessarily know how this relates to Rohel Oyerbach, But, you know, I'm sure... Well, I'm not actually sure if she would agree with us. But, fingers crossed, she would.
0: I think Euerbach would be an ally. I think she would, too. I think she would, too. Homegirl went to a lot of depths suffered from tremendous survivor's guilt. She did so much, truly.
1: What's this about survivor's guilt?
0: So in looking at a lot of Oyerbach's work, and honestly, any Holocaust survivor ever, people are losing their friends, their family, their loved ones, and they had to find their own unique ways to cope with the trauma. A lot of survivors became strong advocates for Holocaust education. Some just completely shut down. In Primo Levi's The Drowned and the Saved, Levi notes that he's compelled to write because they owe it to the victims as they cannot tell their own stories. Auerbach's efforts to tell victims' stories are absolutely invaluable to us, but are also what she sees as part of her task of remembering the individual's unique historians. She sees it almost as... A consequence to her own survival, noting in one of her works that it's core 1943, where she, it's this absolutely beautiful poem that is tragic. And it's noting all of these people she's seen die and their stories. And then at the end, she goes into. What kind of madness is it that drives one to list the various kinds of Jews who were killed? In the same work, she has a section where she's, again, listing off people, and then she says, no, no, I have to stop. No, I can't. Because she truly thinks that she owes it to these people. And we even see this with a lot of the the oral histories work we're doing right now. Like, even extending into second and third gen. Mm-hmm. They feel this
1: obligation, yeah. Yeah. which means there's also an obligation on our part to fight for trans youth. Yeah,
0: an obligation to fight for anyone. Yeah. That's the moral of the story. Yeah, an obligation, you know, just like Israel had to kidnap Adolf Eichmann from Argentina, bring him to Israel just to show the world that maybe they shouldn't hate Jews at least as much as they do. Like, maybe chill it out a little bit, you know? 43-year-old Gerald trying to get into the country club isn't posing you any risk. He's trying to live his life, as all of us are.
1: He just wants his kids to enjoy the
0: pool. He just wants his kids to enjoy the pool. Yeah, it's truly, it's it's really disheartening to see that we can look back in history as much as we want And we can say, oh, study history so that it doesn't repeat. And it does, because people don't make the steps to fix it. And it may not repeat exact for exact. You know, there were different kinds of secret archives through different ghettos, which is a whole other project. Um, And, you know, I'm not burying my own journals underneath the streets of Charleston, worried that something's going to happen, but... I mean, think of all the people who are documenting their day-to-day experiences. The trans youth, you know, anyone in the LGBTQ community can, you know, attest to wanting to get their stories out so people know they exist. Yeah. There's so much talk about that right now. Like, we, we have to know that we exist in order for you to treat us well. History doesn't repeat itself exactly, but it sure does do it in different fonts.
1: There will always be a scapegoat. It's just a matter of who.
0: Exactly. And it's a matter of using what we know to protect them. But it's really, it's our responsibility as historians and as people to recognize these patterns in history and try to help. You know, I'm a public history intern for the Pink Triangle Legacies, promoting queer Holocaust education. And also, Dr. Jake Newsom, if you're watching this, I'm going to be sending you something to try to get you on here probably but all we need to do is educate and that's what this podcast is it's disseminating knowledge disseminating public education so people can see these for themselves yep and in a language that isn't guarded by the wall of academia that is sometimes just hard for people to read yeah i hate reading academia (laughs) occasionally, sometimes. Depends on the journal.
1: Well, on that note, listeners, I want to thank you for joining us on this episode, our fourth episode. Um, Lucky number four. Yep, that's actually my lucky number. I really enjoyed that number. Aw, I wonder how many we're going to get to. I think we can get here a lot. I think we can, too. So, I think it's important that we ask you, our listeners, um, what exactly is it that you want to see from us? Is there anything or any stories in particular that you would like us to delve into? Um, do you have a story of survival in your family that you would like to get out? Let us know.
0: Or even your own story with being or, impacted yeah. by being a descendant, if you are. Um, even non-direct descendants, you know, maybe your uncle. Your aunt. Yeah. Reach out to us. Let us know. Yeah. Even if we can't personally do that work with you, we will absolutely bust our asses to find someone who can. Mm Mm-hmm. But on that note, I think we're about done. I think the question of the podcast was what are you doing to help the people around you? Yeah. Again, as always, a big thank you to Ellis Librand for composing our beautiful piece at the end and the beginning.